Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. That's on page 301, the Pew Bible. Here again, the very word of our God, the voice of our God, given through the word of God for God's people. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And, and I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mecholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in a posture of humility. We come before you like Elijah, standing, trembling before the presence of God, We ask that you would come and speak, O Lord. May we heed and hear your voice tonight. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. For Christ's glory and in his name. Amen. This is likely a familiar story, biblical story to you, I would assume. Many of you have probably read through this account several times, and the one that precedes it in... uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, Uh, this passage, here in this passage, we find Elijah on the heels of an incredible spiritual victory. The event that precedes this one is, of course, Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal, an incredible spiritual victory, and one that I like to return to for um, apologetic strategies. 
And yet we find Elijah here in the passage that we are looking at tonight in a state of despair, despondency. And it's often been said in going through these passages, I've heard it said many times, that this is a common pattern in our spiritual walk. Uh, We should not be surprised that after times of great spiritual victory and renewal and movements of the Spirit where there is great excitement in the Lord, we should not be surprised that quickly following on the heels of those moments are times of great despair. Of course, it's been said that when you come down from the mountain, you step into the valley. Well, that makes sense. If we consider a spiritual high, a spiritual victory to be much like a mountain, then what happens often is that you realize when you come back down the mountain that the world is as dark and evil and broken as it was when you first began to ascend the mountain. This is a common pattern. I think one that we can all attest to. And so we find Elijah here in the midst of despair and despondency. And why this passage is particularly encouraging, I think for us, is this. That in the midst of Elijah's despair and despondency, we see here the picture of a God who draws near. A God who draws near to confirm his power. And a God who draws near to assure Elijah of his presence. If we wanted to summarize chapters 18 and 19, we could uh, put it this way, that both of these chapters emphasize two specific characteristics of God. That is, that they emphasize His power and they emphasize His eminence. The word eminence meaning nearness, God's proximity to us. Again, if we wanted to summarize chapters 18 and 19 here, we would say that they emphasize two specific characteristics of God, His power and His eminence. The power of God, of course, is displayed in that great confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. We see the power of God visibly in this incredible moment when the fire of the Lord descends from heaven to consume the altar there in front of all the people of Israel and the prophets of Baal to consume an altar that's been three times covered with water. The power of God is demonstrated over and against this false god, Baal, who, as Elijah mocks in verse 27 of chapter 18, he says this. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, that is, he's meditating, or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. What confidence comes in knowing the living God over and against a God who is displayed, particularly in this passage, God, small g, as one who is um, absent, impotent, and most importantly, silent. This is the power of God on display. Elijah here, recognizing the God that he serves is the God who, as the psalmist say, says, neither slumbers nor sleeps, but is always watching our coming and going, both from this time forth and forevermore. This is the power of God displayed. But secondly, in chapter 19, we see the eminence of God. We see the nearness of God displayed, and we see it displayed in two specific ways. We see it first in God's provision and care for Elijah's physical needs. Also a very encouraging passage 
Not one that we're studying tonight, but one that's worth reflecting on. This is chapter 19, particularly verses 4 through 8. Here we see uh, that God provides for Elijah's physical needs. Elijah... uh, comes back from this victory over the prophets of Baal, uh, only to find that his life is in danger because of the wicked queen Jezebel, who is seeking to put him to death. And so he takes off into the wilderness in fear of his life. He sits down beneath a tree and says, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to die. Take me now. He is ready to go. I wonder if any of us looking at the state of the world today have felt similarly. (laughs) Lord, I'm ready to go. And what does the Lord do? Well, He displays His nearness. He displays His imminence, demonstrates His care for Elijah and His provision of Elijah's physical needs. He gives him food and water for the journey. But secondly, God's imminence, His nearness is displayed through His presence And his presence is displayed in his speech. And it's this point that I want to focus on this evening. The nearness and presence of God, which is demonstrated, I think, very emphatically in this passage. What is shown is this, that Yahweh, the God of Elijah, the God of Jacob and Isaac, the God that we serve and love and proclaim here today, the Lord is the God who speaks. Let's look at verses 9 through 13 here together. It says, Elijah comes to a cave and lodges in it. Again, still on the run here for fear of his life. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him. Now, isn't that interesting that the word of the Lord there is personified in such a way that it is the word of the Lord that is actually speaking to Elijah. And the word of the Lord comes to him to ask, what are you doing here? Now, this is not uh, indicative of the fact that God did not know what Elijah was doing there, but it's meant to draw Elijah out of himself, but importantly, to draw him into conversation and communion with the Lord. And I think we, we just need to pause with that for a moment and recognize how incredible that is, that the God who has just demonstrated incredible power by consuming an altar three times doused with water. This incredible moment of God's power and judgment displayed. We see that now held up against this. The, the, the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord coming to Elijah in the midst of his despair to converse with him, to commune with him. Again, we see the power of God displayed. We see the imminence, the presence of God. Displayed. I think we've become somewhat accustomed to this concept of God speaking. Maybe even to the point of taking it for granted. But this passage is emphatic in its presentation of God as the one who speaks. And I think that we see this most clearly in perhaps some of the more famous verses from this passage, which is verse 11 and 12. It's presented in such a way as to build suspense. That is to say that you have this succession of powerful natural phenomenon with the phrase that's repeated, but the Lord was not in that thing. The Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. 
My Hebrew professor has suggested a better translation of not in as not yet in. In other words, there's a great sense of suspense that's kind of building here at this moment where the Lord is passing by and drawing Elijah into a conversation. And we are meant to kind of be sitting on the edge of our seat waiting for the presence of the Lord, expecting demonstrations of great power, expecting the Lord to speak, and yet the Lord is not found in the great wind, the wind which tears the mountain and rocks before Him. The Lord is not in the wind. The Lord is not in the earthquake. The Lord is not in the fire. Now, we might wonder, what is the point of this suspense? What's going on here? Well, if we can put our our uh, ancient Near East caps on for a moment. I want you to think back uh, to that time and how people would have perceived the natural phenomenon that, were, that are occurring in this passage uh, in terms of wind and earthquakes and fire. For those who lived during this time, these kind of natural events or phenomenon were demonstrations of divine power. Baal himself, the God who was just... Uh, 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 as Elijah said, um, too busy to deal with his own prophets, that God was considered, God, small g again, was considered by the Canaanites and the Israelites who adopted the Canaanites' beliefs. Baal was considered to be a storm god. And so they believed that he spoke or manifested his presence in thunder and rain and lightning. And this pattern is not unique to the Canaanites. You can see it in Greco-Roman uh, mythology. You can see it in Norse mythology. You can see it in Celtic mythology. What ha- what's happening? That people are taking these natural phenomenon and, uh, and, and inserting a worldview into them and saying and stating and believing that through these natural phenomenon, the gods are speaking. Well, this is uh, the, the sense in which w- the, the Israelites would have been reading or hearing this, particularly here where there's this instance of great wind which tears the mountain in two. There's this instance of a great earthquake. There's this instance of great fire. These things would have perked up their ears to think, ah, this, this, these are demonstrations of divine power. This is where God is to be found. And you notice, though, that at the end of this passage, God is not found in those demonstrations. But he's found, as it says, in the sound of a low whisper. Now, the, the, the people who would have been uh, hearing this were right to understand that creation does indeed testify and declare to the existence and glory of a divine being. And we have greater revelation now to know that Creation does, in fact, speak of the glory and the majesty and existence of God so that, yes, even these natural phenomenon are themselves proclaiming the glory of God. We understand this by the word of God, such as in Hebrews 11.3. The author says, by faith, we understand that the very universe was created by what? It was created by the word of God. God spoke, and so it came to be. Psalm 19, likewise, declares, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim The work of his hands, day after day, they pour forth speech, and night after night, they reveal knowledge. And it's for this reason that Paul says in Romans 1 that man is without excuse. Why? Because God's divine power, his eternality, 
the existence of God can be demonstrated through creation. So earthquakes themselves demonstrate the existence and power of God. Heavenly fire, wind, these things in and of themselves are declaring the glory and majesty of God. But I think that this passage here is is showing us something more because the reality is, is that while creation can tell us about the glory of God, creation can tell us about the existence of God, what creation cannot tell us is this, why the one who created all things would speak to us and why we should ever have the privilege of speaking back to Him. Creation cannot tell us that. And so man for many decades over and over has uh, misinterpreted the declarations of creation, not unlike the people here, the prophets of Baal and the Israelites, who looked at the storm and the rain and the thunder and said, ah, these are the divine declarations of Baal. What they did not realize was that they were serving a God, small g, who is not living, but who is absent, impotent, and silent. Look with me at verse 26 of chapter 18, would you, for just a moment? It says that the prophets of Baal took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Now, I believe that in Jewish understanding and history, morning begins at 6 a.m. So from 6 to noon, the prophets of Baal are calling upon him. But look what, this, look what the text says. It says, but there was no voice. Specifically, there was no voice. No one answered. Look also at verse 29. They continue this revelry, begin to cry aloud and cut themselves with swords and lances. Verse 29 says, as the midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But what? There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, compare that with what we've just read in chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. Again, I think you'll see that the emphasis here is this. Yahweh is the God who speaks. Baal is absent, impotent, and silent. We serve the living God who speaks. Now, there is some debate uh, the, uh, upon the, the construction of these words, the sound of a low whisper. It's a complicated set of three Hebrew words, which can mean uh, the, the Hebrew word call for voice is there among two other words that are difficult to interpret. But at the, the force of the passage, the emphasis of the passage is nonetheless given and I think expressed again in verse 13 when it says this, And behold, there came a voice to him. And the interesting thing is that Elijah recognizes and hears that voice. And if you notice, his response is to wrap his face in a cloak and to go and to stand at the entrance of the cave. This is not only an act of reverence. Some have also have interpreted as an act of, of, of righteous terror. 
to go and to stand before the living God. The same God who had to place Moses in the cleft of the rock as he passed by. Why? Because as he said, no living man can see me. So Elijah wraps his face in this cloak and he goes to stand at the entrance of this cave to hear the God who speaks. God speaks even today. If you've been following along in our study through Hebrews, you'll remember these words. They ought to sound very familiar to you by this point. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Elijah. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The Word of God made flesh. What is the author of Hebrews telling us there? What is he saying? He's saying that the God who speaks to Elijah, the God who declares to Moses, I am that I am, is the same God who comes many hundreds of years later to say, I am, ego in me, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life. The author of Hebrews wants us to know that the voice of God is given in the very Son of God, who is the final, the full and final spoken word of God given by the living God for the people of God. And what is it that Christ came to declare? What is it that Christ came to fulfill and to show? The eminence of God, the nearness of God. How more near could God get than to incarnate himself in the very flesh and blood that we're bound with and come to earth to live and die as one of us? Why? For the purpose of establishing communion. Communion and conversation to establish a relationship so that God might speak to us and that we might have the great privilege of speaking back to Him. Christ came to declare to us what creation could not in itself say and declare. Christ came to declare the means by which we, lowly creatures that we are, might have the opportunity, the privilege of speaking to the God of the universe, the one who created all things by the word of his mouth, the one who sustains and upholds all things by the word of his mouth. Christ comes as the full substance of the gospel of grace in which the love of God, which I think is synonymous with the nearness or eminence of God, is forever and fully demonstrated to us. We are preparing here to sing a great modern hymn called, O Great God. And in this modern hymn, there is a second verse here written which fits so well. It says this, I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear your voice. I did not know your love within, and I had no taste for heaven's joys. But then your Spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your Son, gave me endless hope and peace. The very fact that we are here tonight to hear the voice of the Lord 
And the word of God is itself an act of incredible grace. Because were it not for God's initiative, we would remain blinded in our sin. We would remain without any ears. We would remain deaf to the promises and voice of God. Were it not for the gracious love of our God to make us willing and able to follow him. Able even to hear his voice and then respond. And brothers and sisters, this is true for the hardest of hearts, the deafest of ears, the blindest of eyes. Christ, as the word of God, comes so that those who are blind may see. So that those who have hearts of stone may be given hearts of flesh. So that those who do not hear may hear. And it's for this very reason that we're gathered here tonight. And I don't know why else you would be here. If you're here because you like the music, there's better music elsewhere. (laughs) If you're here because you like the preaching, there's better preaching to be found on YouTube. If you're here out of obligation, it won't last. If you're here out of fear, it won't last. If you're here tonight because your desire is to hear the very word of God, the very voice of God, you're here for the right reasons. I've said already tonight that there's nothing glorious about 12 to 15 people gathering in a small house church. What's glorious is that God has ordained through these ordinary means that this would be the place and the time, the appointed day, appointed time and place where he would speak to us so that we might hear his very voice. We gather to hear the voice of the living God. We gather at a time when there are many other voices that we are tempted to listen to. Many other voices that pull us away from the truth of God. Our time is no less idolatrous than the time of Elijah. It it might be pretty soon when you, you, you log on to the news one day and you see people dancing around an altar and cutting themselves up. It can happen. There are stranger things going on. Our time is no less idolatrous than the time in which Elijah lived. What's interesting is that he feared, in light of that great idolatry, in light of the great presence of evil in his time, he feared that the voice of God was going to be silenced. Look at what he says to the Lord. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the the people of Israel. Your people have forsaken the covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, Elijah's vision there was clouded by the despair and despondency of the brokenness and wickedness of the world that was creeping in to discourage him. And he was not able to see God's reality. All he could see was what he was having to endure the reality of what was facing him, the reality of difficult circumstances and trials. And so Elijah thought, surely this is the moment which the prophets of God will be killed and wiped off the earth and God's voice will be silenced in the earth. But what does the Lord say to Elijah? Well, we get to the very end of the passage and he says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. A remnant is preserved. For thousands of years, amidst the great evils of this world, God's voice has endured. 
and will continue to endure. There's a reason every time we read scripture in our services, we say the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. It is a statement true because it is of God. It is of scripture, but it is a statement that's been proved by history itself in which evil People and generations and nations have come and gone, and yet the voice of God remains as prominent, as loud, as true as it's ever been for those who have ears to hear. We gather here tonight to hear that voice, to be encouraged, not, like, not unlike Elijah, who needed encouragement, who needed to hear the clarity of God's voice needed to hear and be assured of the presence and power and sovereignty of God. God gives his plan here. He tells Elijah what he's going to do. He assures him of his presence and power. He gives him commands. He commands Elijah unto obedience. And he also gives him hope by promising that even in the midst of great wickedness, a remnant will be preserved. The line of the Lord will endure. So too does the voice of God encourage us when we gather here to hear his word. He assures us of his presence and power. He commands us unto obedience and he gives us hope in the plans and purposes of God. So he gives us encouragement. He convicts us where we need to be convicted and commands our obedience. And he also sustains us by the promise that his voice will endure and that someday That voice will be the only voice, and all idolatry shall cease. This is why we gather, and this is why we sing both to God and to one another. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can God say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And so today, understand that what, the reason why we are gathered here is not to hear some monologue from a boring old seminary student, but we are here to hear the very voice of God. That is why this is necessary. And that is why, regardless of what's going on in our lives, we need this desperately. Hear the voice of God calling us unto life. Hear and heed the voice of God. Christ says in the Gospel of John, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And because they follow me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. The voice of God leads us unto life. His is the only voice that does. Oppositely, the many numerous voices of idolatry, and they take many shapes and forms and means and mediums. Oppositely, those voices lead to deafness, muteness, if we could say that, ignorance, and a hardness of heart. Psalm 135 verses 15 through 18 says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths. The idols have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them 
become like them. So do all who trust in them. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying, pursuing idolatry as the worshipers of Baal did leads to the, the, the becoming of them, which is that we become deaf and mute and blind and ultimately dead. This is what's held up before us each week. The voice of God which brings life. The rejection of that voice which brings death. And so as with the author of Hebrews, we say together today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that is as much a statement to the hearts of believers as it is to those who are even being hardened for the day of judgment. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear that encouragement, if you hear that exhortation, if you hear those commands unto obedience, do not harden your hearts, but respond to the voice of God. Heed the voice of the living God. He is the God who speaks. Let's pray. Father, it is your voice we desire to hear. It is your voice we desire to follow. We marvel at the fact that, Lord, you so love us and care for us that you condescended to establish a relationship with us through Christ, your Son, who is your full and final word given for the sake of restoring our relationship with you through his death and resurrection and life. Father, we pray that we would heed your voice in a time of many dissenting and distracting voices which drive us, even voices within that drive us to idolatry. Lord, we pray that we would heed the voice of our shepherd who desires to lead us to still waters and green pastures, that we may have life and life abundantly. May we not neglect to hear your voice. May we not neglect, Lord, to pursue the means which you have given by which we may hear your voice and so be strengthened in our faith and our resolve to love you and serve you. This we pray, trusting in you, the living God. Amen. That God would condescend to speak with us is an incredible thing. But greater still is the privilege of doing what we just did, which is praying to the Lord. And I want to just end with some great words from the hymn writer, a hymn writer who knew well what it means to commune with the Lord in conversation. Fanny Crosby once wrote, I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice, and it told thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to Thee. Consecrate me now to Thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in Thine. Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before Thy throne I spend when I kneel in prayer and with Thee, my God, I commune as friend with friend. Draw me near. Near, blessed Lord, to the cross where Thou hast died. Draw me nearer, near, near, blessed Lord, to Thy precious bleeding side. The point at which the eminence of God meets most emphatically with our need is at the cross. It is Christ crucified, we proclaim, and it is the re- He is the reason that we can Uh, even speak to the God of the universe. So may we take those words to heart 
just as Fanny Crosby did, and count it as a great privilege to be able to commune and speak with the living God. Let's sing as a song of response to our great God from your insert, O Great God.